Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. It's our goal at the Res Talk podcast to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights about a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to all the stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. Now, like so many businesses, activities, and organizations, 2020 has been a year of unprecedented adaptation. In which ways has QA adapted and changed this year? What new techniques, methods, and procedures are being used to maintain the QA function? We welcome back Laurel Elam, Billy Giblin, and Scott Doyle for an interactive overview of the QA team's activities during the past year. Now, much of the discussion focuses on how the pandemic has affected the QA team's oversight of providers in 2020. We learn the reactions to and the feedback received considering all the flexibility allowed by ResNet's emergency policies. The team gives us an overview of the QA standard changes that were anticipated coming into 2020, specifically Addendum 30. And we close with a feeling of pride for the broader housing industry, which has remained so resilient. So let's listen in as Laurel, Billy, and Scott describe to us the state of the ResNet QA for 2020. Greetings. This is Laurel Elam with ResNet. I am the Director of Quality Assurance Administration and Standards. I have been on staff for over 10 years now, and I enjoy very much working for ResNet and with my co-workers here on the Quality Assurance team. Fantastic. And we also have with us Billy. Hey, everybody. My name is Billy Giblin. I'm the Quality Assurance Field Specialist for ResNet and I've been with ResNet now for two and a half years and really been enjoying this experience to kind of work on a, a different level in the HERS industry and then get to know so many great folks around the country that I get to visit as part of my job. Very good. And last but not least, Scott. Hello, I'm Scott Doyle. I'm the Technical Director of Quality Assurance and Training for ResNet. Been in this role since 2017 and have previously worked as a reader and provider in QAD and trainer on the private side of our industry. Three well-experienced people here to talk about the state of QA for ResNet for 2020. I don't think anyone starts a podcast or even a discussion or conversation without saying, how has the pandemic affected things in terms of the QA team's oversight for of providers in 2020? Can you give us some perspective on that? Maybe, Laura, you could kick it off. Well, we've definitely had to do a bit of work uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in March and April. We worked closely with our executive director and other members of the staff to put in some policies in place to assist providers. We can go into some details on those as far as like remote quality assurance, which is actually part of our standards. But we also did some policies around remote inspections and default testing values. So the first part of the year was definitely heavily focused on creating policies and standard amendments to assist providers and raters during this time to make sure that everyone kept safe. We launched a web page that was dedicated to those policies as well as additional information. So we have that at the top of all of our web pages, our COVID-19 page. And then we kind of shifted and I'll let Scott and Billy pass the baton to them. And then we shifted into doing instead of on-site field visits with our quality assurance providers this year, we did remote field visits. So I'll let the guys address that. Sure. Uh, and Billy, you mentioned field visits and you're passionate and enjoying that. 
how have you found the remote QA field observation visits to go? Is it a good mechanism for evaluating process? It is, and it's been overall effective at keeping us all safe as well as being able to be with folks while someone at least is in the home. There's pros and cons, of course. Connectivity is something we're all learning about. And I think what's good about being able to do my visits is I'm getting a real insight into the realities of folks being able to use remote QA as part of a Denim 30 and also folks being able to do remote inspections as part of the COVID protocols. I'm kind of getting to experience what works and what doesn't work as well. Been able to use lots of different platforms from FaceTime on the phone to other Google Duo, Microsoft Teams, Zoom, and others platforms. And all in all, most of them, all of them seem to work pretty well. A big challenge for me is just getting back together and capturing screenshots for photos in a timely way that doesn't hold folks up. And I think that is kind of a thing with the remote is just a bit of a disruption or kind of slowing of the flow for folks that are in the house to have to kind of be the eyes and kind of slow things down at times so that the person remotely can see things. You miss the face-to-face contact. That's something we miss. We're definitely getting still the interaction, but the face-to-face contact. And then just that three-dimensional experience of being in a house and seeing things peripherally and picking things up without having to cue the person that's there are things that are shortcomings of the process. But it's been good to experience it because it will be something as part of the standards for Denim 30. So yeah, all in all, though, it's been working well. Very good. Scott, your perspectives, please. Yeah, I've done a few of these as well. In my experience, yeah, once you work around the typical connectivity issues, as Billy said, and you're actually in the process, I find it to be actually really effective. I think we are able to do our job, and that is primarily to focus on what the QA is doing, what is their process for completing field QA, how they go about it, if there's anything missing, if there's any opportunities for us to mentor them. If we catch things that are missing in their process, perhaps they're still hanging on to an old way and a new standard is requiring a behavioral change that gives us an idea of where they are. To some degree, I think there's a pro and a con here. I like to be in the house because I feel like I can see and catch details that maybe I couldn't catch because I'm beholden to where the person points the camera. But there's a pro to that as well. I have a tendency to focus on the house a little too much sometimes in my field QA observations and lose track of the QAD and what their process is. So this really does help me actually focus because 100% of what I'm seeing is what the QAD is seeing as well. It's odd. It's strange for everyone. I I hate to use the phrase new normal because nobody wants it to be normal, but that's the new abnormal and we're all getting used to it in so many different aspects of our life. And I think that's part of it is that people are doing so many things differently. Family gatherings and things like that are happening remotely and we're all developing a new skill set, perhaps. You talked about what's going on, but what's been the feedback from providers? And we'll just go in the same kind of order, Laurel, Billy, and then Scott. Tell me, are they using remote QA, using remote inspections? And how about the default testing values? Cover those three topics. Yeah, definitely. Those are questions that Scott and Billy specifically ask the providers when they're doing their online reviews with them. So they have definitely a little bit more perspective than I do. But 
Definitely using remote quality assurance. I've talked to lots of providers that are using our remote quality assurance protocols. Some are using the remote inspections. The raters are using remote inspections. And a few are using default testing values. I would think more are using the remote inspections than using default testing values. Got it. Billy, your perspectives on the feedback? Yeah, pretty similar to what Laurel said. I mean, I think the remote QA, some folks, some QADs have been using it, which is good because then they get to share with me what works and doesn't work for them. So it's good to get their perspectives. And some haven't or are doing it for the first time while I'm on with them. And the remote inspections are being used, not widely, but they've been used at times. I think because they're coupled to ultimately you got to test the house too. You know, definitely the default testing values are not being used that widely at all. A few of the people I've talked to, very few, are making use of them, but they're often planning to go back and test the house later. So yeah, that's generally what I'm learning. Scott, I'm going to twist the question a little bit for you into regionally. What have you seen in terms of regional feedback? Is there any kind of region of the country that's doing things markedly different in either direction? No, actually, I haven't seen it tied as closely to the region as I have seen it tied to the business model. So for example, if the QAD is working in an organization that has ratings across multiple markets, and they would normally have had to get on a plane or do some traveling, stay in a hotel, Pretty much 100% of those organizations that are set up like that are taking advantage of remote QA. And it is by far the most widely used of our emergency policies. And I suppose remote inspections, you might see pockets of that that might be more tied to regions. But I really just haven't seen that one very widely used, as Billy and Laurel have said. And the same thing for default testing values. In fact, I've seen default testing values. I've had more feedback that is negative. When I ask about it, more people are strongly opposed to using it. And I think that should be obvious. It kind of creates a fear that it might undermine the value that we're trying to establish the reader being on site. So I think largely people are averse to the default testing values, but there have been, I think, some instances where it really was necessary in the only way that somebody could have safely been able to continue to operate their business. And that I'm going to pose a question that kind of springboards off of that to Laurel. Considering all this flexibility that's being allowed in in the various means of uptake with the emergency policies, are providers still being held to the standards, to the ResNet standards? Yeah, absolutely. They're still going to be accountable for doing file and field QA per the standards, 10% file, 1% field. We are going to be more flexible, particularly when it comes to the case of field reviews, because we know that there are some states that completely shut down or they might not have access to be doing any sort of remote QA. Billy mentioned there's technology issues in some cases, too, where it's really remote and they can't get cell signal and things like that. But they'll still be beholden as overarching to all of the ResNet standards. Got it. I would point out one region that seems to have maybe used the remote protocols a little more with regards to the remote inspections and some default test values is just Vermont. There's one provider there and building was really shut down for a while there. So on some level, when the builders weren't doing anything, the Raiders had nothing to do either, but the builders were kind of shut out of the house for quite a while. So they used a little more maybe than other regions, but they did say to me where they've used the testing default values. They generally intend to go back and test them if the homeowners will let them in. Okay, so there'll be a retest there, if you will, or, yeah, or a in-person test. Yeah. yeah, and they'll adjust the rating file and the registry. Got it. 
I should have added to my answer that we'll have a more complete picture of the use of remote inspections and default testing values when our providers um, submit their annual reports. So those are going to be new requirements this year for providers to include the counts of those and which addresses in their annual reporting. Got it from the providers. So let's look at the commercial aspects and the effects of the pandemic on the housing market, since we all are talking to so many different people that are boots on the ground from this aspect. Any issues in terms of staffing, hiring, building materials, practices, things like that? But who would be best to answer that question? Sure, I can take that. I've definitely gotten feedback from providers. This is very regional. In Texas, for example, in Central Texas, I've had providers report that there's there's shortages of materials specifically they're unable to get let's say it's just a tiny part not even the whole compressor or condenser for an ac unit it's just like one little part that's coming from another country that supply chain interruption has this downstream effect and what it's meaning is that houses may go up but be missing one thing or another and unable to actually close or move on to the next inspection or next step because they're being held up by some kind of supply chain interruption. Probably most of your audience has experienced or has heard of the lumber pricing and the spike that happened earlier this year. I think what I'm hearing is we may have been able to put that a little bit more in the past. But so there, as we go, I think there are different supply chain interruptions that are affecting people. But by and large, more often than not, when I ask questions about the effects of the pandemic on the Raiders' businesses and their builder clients, and their just general sentiment about how they're going to do this year. I think the housing market has seemed to be really strong, at least in areas where ratings happen. Strong demand, creating a pretty intense need for housing and builders basically not having a problem with sales, perhaps having some problems in being able to build homes as fast as the demand is requiring. And I think that's likely to spill into the first half of next year. I've gathered there's a lot of resilience to this unexpected monkey wrench in the gears of the housing market, feeling and hearing the same thing. Billy, you have some perspective to add to the commercial impacts? Definitely material shortages in different markets. They vary some around the country, but the main things being that I hear are appliances, mechanical equipment, mini splits in certain markets. Windows seems to be another one that's pretty universal. And one municipality, at least this one provider was telling me that they actually are letting people move into homes with sheathing in the window. <laughs> with, I, just, I guess because they just need people in the house. So there's at least one or more markets where they're actually going past the CFO and then putting in windows later and then testing, et cetera, has to happen later. So yeah, definitely a lot of materials holdups. And then interesting thing is people are really busy, as has been alluded to, a lot of rating companies are growing their business and expanding their business and trying to hire in some places, having a hard time hiring because some of the unemployment benefits are better than going to work. It does seem like in many places, though, those are about to expire. I think here in Colorado, they just expired on Monday, the end of November. So that may allow these folks to start finding folks willing to come to work because there is a shortage of labor for rating companies in certain markets. But I'd say that's just a matter of time. None of this was anticipated by anyone in the world at the end of 2019. But going into 2020, there were certain plans and changes that were coming into to bear in the quality assurance standards, specifically Addendum 30. How have these changes been implemented and received by the rating industry? I mean, it's something that had to happen, was going on, and then the pandemic hit on top of it. 
but the changes themselves, can you discuss those? And maybe we'll start with Laurel. The QA industry had plenty of a heads up as far as knowing that these changes were happening. So as far as the use of the QA checklist, we had had it out in different versions available for people to start using before it was required to be used. And Billy, I'm sure can speak a little bit more to the QA checklist. We're actually, I'm going to do a promo. We're doing a a webinar next week that's all about the checklist. So that will be recorded for folks to be able to view later on if you're unable to attend. But they had plenty of heads up that these changes were coming. And then we did do one thing as a reaction to the pandemic is all QA delegates not were going to be required to become full quality assurance designees. So we actually waived that requirement that was supposed to happen in October. And so we said, okay, you guys can have more time because basically they just have to take an exam and apply to become a quality assurance designee. So delegates are still out there, but everything else has been implemented. And I think rather successfully, I think that Addendum 30 helps with consistency throughout the way quality assurance is done. So I'm looking forward to actually getting the reports in for the 2020 reports in and see how the use of these tools have been effective. Very good. Scott, you want to add something on this subject, this topic? Yeah, sure. I think there are a couple of elements of Addendum 30 that actually really helped us out. We had to go through and create protocols for remote quality assurance because it was allowed by Addendum 30. Now it was restricted. So we opened up some of those restrictions as part of our emergency measures, but we were able to make that quick pivot because we had already piloted remote quality assurance. We already thought through how would that work created written procedures for how to do it. So I think it was really good that that we had that in the works because it allowed us a better response to the pandemic. And then another one, another new measure that's in addendum 30 is the allowance to do field quality assurance at the pre-drywall stage. That's something I've cared about and wanted to see happen for a long time because I think that it's where the rater makes the most difference to the end product that is the homeowner's experience. And I think doing quality assurance at that stage has always made sense. We just haven't had anything in place to recognize providers that were doing it as meeting their minimum requirements. We did have that in Addendum 30. And if you put that in the context of a pandemic, well, now that allows the quality assurance designee to be at a job site that isn't closed up, that doesn't have a bunch of people in a closed space working together, and I think is a much safer field exercise out in the open air. Interesting. All these things fell into place. What is the current status of the performance-based quality assurance proposal? And I'll go back to Laurel for that. So the performance-based quality assurance proposal actually went back out for a second round of public comment per a board directive. So I think that that ended in August. And so we got seven comments received through both of the comment periods. Basically, the first comment period ended right as the pandemic was affecting everyone. So the board decided that we needed some additional feedback. So we sent it back out for public comment and we have made some changes based upon the comments that we've received. And Scott is actually presenting our final proposal to the board of directors next week. Yeah, I'll add to that. It's public comment is what we've kind of been talking about internally, but really it's industry vetting. I want to make sure that folks aren't confused by the term. It's not a consensus document, but before we present this to the board, and ask them to vote on this as a policy so that we know we have marching orders to kind of go forward and implement that. 
we wanted to make sure that we could tell the board that we have done our due diligence to get industry input, that the measures that we're writing here are things that people have had a chance to give us feedback on. Are they achievable? Are they crazy? Or people stumble into them? It's just too easy. So we've taken that feedback and incorporated it into a revision. And as Laurel said, I'll be presenting that to the board very shortly here. So are there certain expectations for these emergency protocols, the COVID protocols going into 2021? We're sitting here recording this on December 4th. What's the outlook like? I'll start with Billy. Looks like we're all going to be waiting a while for vaccines. So I would say things are going to continue. A lot of our emergency protocols are tied to the lifting of the national emergency status. So not really knowing what the current president would do and how that handoff might or might not happen to the next one. It seems likely, at least, that these will continue well into next year. Scott, do you want to add your thoughts to that, expectations? Yeah, I just want to draw a line or distinguish between some of our emergency measures that our executive director has the authority to implement, and those have largely been tied to, the, as Billy said, the declaration of national emergency and they are set to expire 30 days after the national emergency is ended. But there is one exception. One of the items that we discussed earlier was use of default test values, and that was not something that the executive director put into place through his emergency powers. Instead, that was an interim amendment. So interim amendments have an expiration date to them. They have to go back out for public comment or they expire. And so the default testing values that went into place as an interim amendment went back out as a standard amendment. So basically, it's up to the public comment process to decide whether that one stays in place or whether it expires. Do you have any status on that or a time frame? Yeah, I'll default that to Laurel. Okay. The public comment period ended for that particular amendment on November the 12th. So I believe that they are considering the comments right now. And so we should have a status update of that fairly soon. So through all of this, the resident Q18, who we're speaking with today, have you been available for technical assistance and technical questions? And how is that kind of dialogue going? And I'll just go around the virtual room here and start with Billy. Yeah, I was actually surprised to have that question asked to me by a representative of a large providership. I guess in my mind, I assume people knew that already. So we do want people, we do want to echo that message a few more times that indeed, yes, we are available for technical assistance to raters, to QADs, to providers. And we definitely want people to realize we are available. In the case of a raider, RFI, often the better first step is to reach out to your provider and try to get an answer. And then if the provider isn't sure, then definitely we are available. We can take the time to research it and get a good answer. And if it's a software-related question, often the first place to go is to the software provider and ask them the question because they might have the workaround and they're the real experts for the software. We would ask in that case that you copy us on at least one or more of us on the emails to them so that we learn this while you learn that. Again, otherwise you can reach out to us if they give an answer that seems vague or they want to defer to ResNet. So yeah, we just do want to know that people realize we are available. We're always available via phone, email to reach out for technical advice. And is there a specific place people can go to gather that contact information? Laurel, do you know that? 
So we have a quality assurance resources page on our website. If you go to providers and then rating providers, and then on the right side menu, you'll see quality assurance resources. And all three of our, myself, Billy, and Scott's contact information is right there. Very good. If it's regarding COVID-specific things, policy interpretations of those policies, we did set up a dedicated email address. COVID19info at resnet.us is that email address. So for anybody that has questions about our emergency policies, that's the place to direct it. Otherwise, scott at resnet.us, billy at resnet.us, and laurel at resnet.us. Got it. And COVID19info, that's just all one word stream together there? Yeah, it's the numbers one nine for 19. Sure. <laughs> Got it. Any closing thoughts, folks? To this topic, the QA update. I would just say that I'm pretty intrigued by the way people in general are adjusting to COVID and the realities of how this year has gone, as hard as this year has been for many of us in many different ways. It's impressive to see the resilience of people in the industry specifically and regarding this podcast, but and just in general, people in our communities. And you know, I'm hoping my kids, I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old, that they'll come through this and this will be a formative experience for them and they'll be more resilient humans ongoing because they'll have plenty of other challenges to face coming up. So to close here today, I want to just look back retrospectively as we head towards the end of the year and maybe just ask a lighthearted question of, we'll do all four of us and I'll, I'll answer at the end. What personal changes have happened throughout the COVID-19 as we put 2020 in the rearview mirror? Any kind of personal changes household changes, things you'd like to share. Just one thing that you'd like to share with us. And I'll start with Laurel. Everybody that's known me in this industry for the longest time knows that I went to App State and never left Boone. But actually, I left Boone. I've moved to Wilmington this year. The housing market was on fire up in the mountains of North Carolina. So I put my house on the market within 24 hours. I had an offer within 48 hours. I was under contract. I packed my house up and I moved to Wilmington. So that was definitely a big change for me, but I've enjoyed it here. I left my snow shovel behind and I'm looking forward to maybe going to the beach on Christmas day, which is something I've never done. So that was a big change. We're trying to get her to move to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and Scott, cause you're based there, right? Billy, your voice picked up there. What personal changes would you like to share with the listeners? I've just been able, between me staying at home and doing a lot of my work from home and then my son intermittently being at home with learning and in person a little bit. Just in general, it's just been more family time, more time with the family on a daily basis, able to start my day and end my day in a way that I can be part of the daily flow. And then just, yeah, in many ways, I'll miss this in some ways when we go back to normal. So it's been good quality time with our kids at an important time in their lives and with my wife at an important time in their marriage. There's been some silver linings. Very nice. Scott, what's your perspective on this? I guess I'll share one thing. It's, it seems like a little anticlimactic after their exciting news, but we've been meaning to put in a garden and we'd only been in this house for a couple of years and hadn't gotten around to a very expanded garden at least. So I converted a whole bunch of what was just sod, irrigated sod that was just an irritation to have to mow and water all the time, created that to, or converted that to raised bed gardening. That was a pretty large project in the spring. And then during the summer, it was just harvest. And we definitely enjoyed that. It kept us busy all the way through fall, kept us active. And 
kept us outdoors so we didn't go stir crazy. Uh, did you say a raised bed garden? Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. We're going to talk after this because <laughs> that's what we want to do next year going into to next spring. And I said, I would add what's new in our life. We finally got our new house built and uh, moved in just under three weeks ago. So this is something very new and different for us and uh, we're very proud and uh, very thankful to be able to do this in spite of all the extension and the time frames and things going on in the world. We were able to get in just before Thanksgiving. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us, you, the guests, and you, the listeners, and joining us on the podcast. We'll be talking to you again. I'm sure we talk with the QA team quite regularly because it's an important role that they play in the organization and for you, the listeners. So thanks again, everyone, Laurel, Billy, and Scott. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Happy holidays to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of the ResTalk podcast. If you're a pro in the building market, you can surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more to join the email list. You can also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter at ResNetUS. Quote for today from Andy Warhol. They always say time changes things, but you actually have to change them yourself. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you heard here or would like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet.us. And if you've not subscribed, please consider doing so. As always, thank you for listening to ResTalk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ResTalk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk.